Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton's top health official says we're over the peak for the pandemic, but it's not over yet. Talk with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger about that. Conservative leader Andrew Shearer says the CERB payments are actually going to deter people from returning to work. Really? And how tense are the relations between China and the U.S. right now? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton's top health official now says that we are over the peak for the pandemic, but it's not over yet. Those are some of the uh, thoughts of Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, and uh, they had their meeting. Well, they do this on a daily basis. Uh, and, and obviously the concern here is we've been talking about over the last couple of days is, is where do we go from here? What are the next steps? Joining us to talk about that is Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Mayor, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. How are you? Good. Listen, before we get into the uh, the, the, the COVID stuff, uh, I yep. know I would be remiss if I didn't mention that because I know you always do. Uh, this is a very special day for you and, and people in the the, yeah. the Dutch community, the 75th uh, anniversary of the liberation of the Netherlands. I know you and I have talked about it in the past and your stories from your family about uh, some of the wonderful things that went on. And the Canadian troops, of course, were the ones who actually liberated this. Uh, pretty special day, isn't it? Special day, uh, you know, for, for the Dutch and Canadians and, uh, you know, the gratitude from the, the Dutch community and, and Holland uh, today is, uh, is forever, forever, uh, not never ending. Uh, so, uh, you know, the many tulips that we see uh, popping up around uh, in Ottawa and here in front of City Hall are all the reminiscence of uh, the gratitude that the, the Dutch have for that Liberation Day. And my, <clears throat> you know, so I was, uh, I was not born then, but, uh, you know, Liberation Day in 1945 was, uh, right in the wheelhouse of my parents. Uh, mother was uh, occupied in Holland. Uh, my father was actually interred, picked up, and made to work in the uh, work camps in Germany. So he was a prisoner of war, I guess, for all intents and purposes. And so that liberation was a uh, massive celebration. Uh, you know, when, and you think about, you know, in, in Holland and many other countries were basically struggling. You would think the struggling we're having now. Uh, they were they were looking for the next meal. Uh, they were scrimping on uh, you know what could what could they put together. Uh, everything was clamped down. They were under the thumb of uh, you know an oppressive ruler. Uh, all of that uh, evaporated, and so the celebration was huge. So when I see veterans today, and you know there are a few veterans, there were a few veterans left. But, uh, they uh, you know I, I I tell them that my mother kissed a lot of soldiers that day, <laughs> and I, I also tell them that uh, it, it better have ended there. But in any event. The uh, the celebration was great, and uh, and and the gratitude is never ending. And so uh, I, I feel it in my heart. Uh, you know, I I could never I, I wouldn't be here uh, as a, a proud Canadian immigrant, uh, but uh, forever proud of the the work that Canadians did to help liberate a country that was uh, you know in, in the middle of a huge oppression, as was most of Europe. And so uh, it was a great day, and certainly we uh, we like to celebrate it. And I I feel it every May fifth. Well, uh, and I know that in the past you've always uh, taken part in some of the celebrations that have gone on here in this community uh, with the Dutch uh, community, but uh, given the circumstances right now, we're just going to do it virtually and wish them all the best and, and again, uh, celebrate the day in in your own way. Uh, It's a very special day for a a great segment of the Hamilton population. Now, let's talk about uh, what's happening here with COVID-19. You must be under immense pressure uh, from people that are calling in and saying, Come on, Mr. Mayor. They, they say we're over the worst of this thing. Start opening things up. I want to play golf. I want to go shopping. I want to go to the mall. Uh, what, what's what's happening as you guys discuss this? I, I I've I've got on on record. And I'll mention it again for you, and I want to get your comment on this. I, mm-hmm. I'm concerned very much so that we're going to try to do too much too soon, and and I'm afraid of what might happen. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about that, but not, but I, I don't think that the community wants to kind of just throw away the good work that we've had up until now. So I, I, I don't sense that everyone's prepared to throw caution to the wind. Uh, you know, you see a lot of that happening in the United States. You know, you know, Canadians have a different attitude. We're not, uh, we're not that, uh, that, that level of uh, independence that uh, that the Americans, uh, you know, have grown up with, that uh, you look after yourself and the heck with everybody else. We're much more uh, community-minded, much more mindful of the impacts that it has on other people. And so uh, I see I see that we're not going to go down that road. But but yes, there's pressure. I mean, I have I, I feel I feel pressure myself. You know, it's, it's springtime. And, uh, you know, usually it's springtime. You want to get out and doing those things that you normally do when the winter is over and you want to just get out there and, and enjoy the air and whatever activities you like to do, uh, you know, when the weather is a little warmer. Everybody feels that right now. We're getting questions about, you know, why why is the trail in Burlington open along the waterfront and not in Hamilton? Uh, there are differences, uh, unique differences between the two, and there's some rationale around that. But my hope is and my desire is that, uh, that we would want all of those uh, open spaces to be open sooner rather than later. And if 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 our doubling effect, which is what the the doctor was talking about, so we're at the, the you know the the downside of the curve, means that the number of cases are not doubling every a day or two. It's now doubling every six, seven, or eight days, which is a good sign that uh, that 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 is stretching out, and therefore the cases are going not necessarily going down, but the doubling effect is not uh, not increasing. And so we're we're in a positive territory and. The reality is that we're going to have to find a way of living with this virus for some time in any event. And so at some point, we're going to have to start accepting the fact that, uh, that, that the life as we know it has changed, that we're going to you know, probably be masked, or we're going to have barriers up to protect people, whether customers or, or employees. Uh, that will continue for quite some time. I mean, when I say quite some time, until such time as there's a, a vaccine available that can vaccinate the population against this virus uh, up until then uh, we're going to have a different environment but uh, in the meantime uh, we need to start getting our economy back into shape as well and and the only way to do that is safely and i think canadians very much understand that uh, opening this up too soon will possibly get us right back into a complete closure to protect lives and uh, and not uh, not do additional harm so I think people get it, and uh, I expect that, that the, the vast majority of citizens to date have gotten it because they have, they're getting good information. And uh, I think as long as we continue to give them that good information as to why these steps are necessary, I think the vast majority will come along. Have we relaxed the standards, though, because of that pressure? I mean, when this whole thing started, the, the conventional wisdom, and not just from Dr. Richardson, because she's obviously getting her cues from, from the Canadian medical authorities, uh, mm-hmm. Was that look? We had, we need 14 days with no new cases, and then we can start to relax things. Well, nobody in Canada has gone 14 days with no new cases yet. We're starting to relax them, anyways. Is it because we know something we didn't know then, or is it just because there's so much pressure to say enough is enough? No, I think I think the the areas that they're relaxing are areas where you can you can do uh, you know spatial separation uh, fairly easily. So we're not we're not relaxing the businesses that. Uh, have people sitting on top of one another. Uh, we're not relaxing, uh, you know, large gatherings that uh, would obviously cause uh, the spread of this virus. And I think we're creating creating a balance between, you know, what uh, people would now like to do. This virus has been around a while. Uh, can people in the outdoor spaces, in parks, and, uh, and on trails, 
you know, physically separate? Uh, absolutely they can. Can they, can they wear protective equipment if they need to? Uh, of course they can. And so as long as, as long as they're taking those measures and those steps in the public spaces, uh, I think we're okay for that, that area. Might be a bit of a testing ground to see how everybody uh, actually performs. And then we take a measured approach in terms of looking at uh, if, if there's a, a two-week period where we don't have any additional cases, then is that then an opportunity to look at other things that could open up that uh, are, are a bit more intensive, that causes people to be a little closer together, but still with all the proper protections in place. So I don't think anyone's throwing out the playbook. Uh, at the same time, I think they're also balancing the notion that, uh, you know, at some point, uh, the uh, people need to get back to some sense, some sense of normalcy and do it in a way that is as uh, minimizing the risk as much as possible. And I think starting off with these public spaces, I, I think is probably a good test. And then we'll see how that works out. And uh, if it doesn't work out, then we may very well retreat back into, you know, the, uh, the, the complete closure that we've had for, for the, the last two months. Um, I don't think that's desirable for anybody, but if it's necessary, then we go there because, uh, you know, the number, if you look at what's happening in the United States right now, the, 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 the rise in the number of cases, the rise in the number of deaths, the volume, I mean, 60,000 people have died in the space of two months as a result of this virus in the United States. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't have numbers like that, fortunately. Uh, but the reality is if the spread of this virus gets out of hand, we could very well have numbers like that. So, Let's not go there. Yeah, we've even seen, uh, as they were reporting last night, that some of the jurisdictions that have opened their doors in the last week or so are now starting to see a spike in uh, in cases, right. which is, is rather troubling. And I think we can learn from that. But you mentioned something else that I think it's very germane to the conversation, Mr. Mayor. Uh, the COVID virus has not been defeated. What we've done is stop the spread of it. It's still there and still very communicable. And, and if we don't let our guard, if we do let our guard down, rather, we're going to have a problem. The projections I'm seeing right now, and I, I know Dr. Richardson's talked about this uh, on our program as well, is that uh, we're probably going to see this, I don't know if you can necessarily call it a spike, but probably in the fall and into next winter uh, as we get to flu season, uh, COVID's still going to be around. Uh, you know, if there's a vaccine, great, but not everybody's going to get vaccinated. So I, I guess the, the plan here is that, look, at, don't throw this playbook out because we may need it again in four or five or six months. Maybe exactly. not as extreme as this, but at least be preventative now. Well, depending on you know what this virus does, and you know this, uh, you know everything that I know and hear about the the, the virus is that this is probably one of the most contagious <clears throat> viruses that are out there, and it's, it it can spread like wildfire if if it's not uh, you know kept in check. So uh, that's that's the process that we've been on is keeping this in check, and you know if everybody gets this virus and everybody ends up in the hospital. Uh, we have got a massive problem because then we're going to overrun the healthcare system, and we're going to have to make those uh, so kinds of ugly choices that they had to make in Italy when they when they overran their healthcare system. So they they not only shut down their community, they would allow people to go outside, and they're just now relaxing that scenario. And so things could get more severe if we relax. Uh, what we need to do is take a measured approach, and uh, I think the uh, the federal and provincial governments have been. Uh, quite strategic and quite calculating, have, have provided the, uh, you know, supports for community out there, understanding that people are unemployed and not and, and don't have resources, so money is flowing, uh, as they should. Uh, you know, and I thought yesterday, you know, somebody mentioned to me that, you know, we're all thinking we're all hard done by, and then they, they, uh, they laid out a scenario from the early 1900s, the, the amount of things that people were living in the early 1900s to, you know, just after the Second World War, how many things they had to deal with, 
which included the Spanish flu pandemic, included the First World War, uh, it included the Great Depression, and it included uh, the Second World War. Uh, and, you know, my parents were through some of that. Yours, yours were as well. Mm-hmm. And our, our grandparents uh, might have lived through that whole period. And uh, you know, that whole period, they had all of those challenges to deal with. Currently, we have this one major challenge that we have to deal with. <clears throat> and we have science and technology at hand to help us do it so that we don't end up losing tens of millions of people as a result of the pandemic, not unlike the Spanish flu that we're able to keep it at a minimum, tragic as it is. And yet, uh, if, if we can contain ourselves and make the kinds of investments that keep the economy somewhat whole, that we can get through this quite successfully. So we're in a pretty good space in terms of being able to do that. Quite fortunate that we have all of, this, uh, all of these resources and science and technology available. Uh, had we not had any of that, we would be in very, very serious trouble right now. The takeaway I'm getting from your conversations uh, and the ones I have with Dr. Richardson and with Paul Johnson over the last couple of weeks, Mr. Mayor, uh, is, is simply this. is Yeah, the numbers weren't as severe as, as had been predicted a few months ago, and that's mm-hmm. good. But the reason they weren't as severe is because most people in this community did what they were supposed to do with the physical distancing and, and self-oscillation if, in fact, that's what they had to do. And, and, and what Dr. Richardson said the last time she was on the show uh, earlier this week was if we let our foot off the gas and stop doing that, uh, we're going to go right back to square one again. I mean, that, and that could be tragic for so many people. Yeah, we, we would have wasted all the good effort that was put into this, including all the, the money and resources that have been plowed into keeping people and businesses as whole as, as possible. So why, why waste all of that investment? Why waste all that investment in time? Uh, right now, we're in a we're in a, in a kind of a holding pattern, and uh, you know, we're and, and slowly easing the uh, the pressure, uh, you know, little by little. And uh, you know, let's not waste all of that good effort. And you're right, uh, you know, they they could not have predicted that everyone would would be as uh, as, as as conscientious as they've been, uh, and they certainly anticipated, as many communities did, a higher number of cases. And prepared ourselves to uh, to be able to manage those in our healthcare system. And you know, some might look at it and say, "Well, now that you've done all that expansion, you didn't really need it." Well, we planned planned for the worst, and and you, you hope for the best, and we got the best. Uh, not a good scenario in terms of uh, people getting sick. Now, never great when when uh, when when people have died. And our condolences go out to all those that have lost a, a family member as a result of this. But the reality is that it could have been much, much, much worse. And uh, and the planning that was done on this uh, certainly kept us in, in in a state of readiness that should it get out of control, that we were able to manage that and have the appropriate amount of equipment available for people to uh, utilize. And that and that was even on the margins and on the edge. And so uh, I think uh, I think the community at large deserves a lot of credit individually. Everybody understood why it was important to uh, to isolate, to separate, to not connect with family. Uh, you and I and many others, uh, you know, might, might have grandchildren that we're aching to see, but we haven't seen them in a couple of months. And, and we do that because we know that that contact could spread the virus to them or us. And then, uh, and then that spread goes further than that. So people get it and they've, they, they've actually reacted to it in, a, in, the, in the best possible way. So the credit totally goes out to the community at large. You know, whatever we say, uh, whatever the public health says or whatever the uh, emergency operations center says, um, if people don't adhere to it, then, uh, you know, it's only our best advice that we're giving people. After that, people have to make choices. And, uh, and the choices that they've made have been very, very successful because things could have gotten dramatically worse.
Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, Mr. Mayor, thanks as always for the time, and uh, we'll stay in touch over the next few days. It uh, looks like uh, there's some important decisions to be made, and we'll certainly uh, talk with you about those as they come up. Thanks again for today, though. Thank you. Looking forward to uh, some sunny and uh, happier days ahead. Me too. As all, I think we all are. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may or may not know that about an hour before that, and this has been going on for about the last week or so, opposition leader Andrew Scheer holds a press conference and, and basically, well, does what opposition leaders do, is basically slag everything the government's trying to do. And, and he's been receiving some criticism for it. But yesterday seemed to be the apex of that when he started talking about the CERB program. And that, of course, is the the program that enhances payments for people that have been laid off and, look, you know, holding off until this thing gets over and they can get back to work. But uh, yesterday, uh, Scheer actually went so far as to say that uh, this this new money that's being available right now for these people that are in peril will act as a tranquilizer on the economy and deter people from taking jobs. In other words, they would rather stay at home than go back to work. Here's, here's what Mr. Scheer had to say. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit and the Canada Emergency Student Benefit both prevent you from earning more than $1,000 a month. So as businesses start to slowly reopen and have shifts to fill, their employees are being forced to turn them down or risk losing their benefits. As the C.D. Howe Institute said, CERB helped cushion COVID-19's impact, but it now threatens to impede the recovery. Yeah, I don't know where he's getting his information from. The uh, conversations we've had in this program and the conversations I've had with uh, Canadian workers that have been uh, laid off and in limbo right now, uh, to a person, they want to get back to work. I, I don't know anybody that's going to sit on their duff and uh, do nothing to, to get this kind of money. But you know, I guess that plays well to a, a certain base that, uh, that Mr. Shear is reaching out to. Let's bring uh, Henry Jasek into the uh, conversation, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Henry, thanks for joining us. I hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, I'm doing well today. Yes, very well. All right, listen, there, we talked earlier, Henry, a couple of weeks ago about this wonderful sense of cooperation uh, between all the political leaders and the political parties as we try to get through this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, it looks like those days are over, and, and Mr. Shear's uh, daily uh, missives with the media right now just seem to be, well, yeah, they're doing this wrong, they're doing this wrong, they're doing this wrong. Uh, we're back to politics as usual, it looks like. Well, to a certain extent, it's very clear that when the uh, when the contagion hit us, and particularly when it uh, was really damaging the economy with the first, you know, wa- with the waves of uh, unemployment and uh, businesses closing down and uh, places of work closing down. Uh, it, clearly, it was so massive that when the government came out and said, okay, we're going to spend a lot of money to get people over the next few months, uh, basically this was supported by the other three opposition parties, the NDP, the Greens, and, and the Bloc Québécois. And uh, and and so it, it didn't look like the government was actually a minority government. And of course, uh, public opinion was is way behind the in favor of what the prime minister is doing. So he he has pretty much a free reign at least over over the you know the spring and and the summer. I think when we hit September, there'll have to be another look at what we're doing. And uh, but at the same time, the the conservatives probably were uneasy, but they knew they had to go along with these things. And in general, the modern conservative party in Canada and in the provinces generally, they they don't like to spend money. Um, And particularly, they worry about exactly what Shearer talked about yesterday. If you give individuals money uh, without them doing any work, you're going to make them lazy. Now, that's an an old conservative idea. 
And but I think we have a lot of research that basically shows, in many ways, yeah, that's generally not true because. For all sorts of reasons, people always want more money, and uh, even if they, uh, you know, if if their job, pay, if getting a job will pay them more than what they're than staying at home, uh, they'll take that job because they want more money. And it is interesting. We have had studies uh, by economists and others, uh, surveys of people asking them uh, how much money is enough, and they usually say, doesn't matter where they are in the economic spectrum. Uh, income spectrum, they normally say, I, I would be happy if I had 25% more. And that sure. wouldn't matter whether they're making $30,000 a year, $300,000 a year, or $3 million a year. They always want more. And so I, I don't think there's a great you know, concern among economists and other people that you're going to make people lazy by giving them money to tide them over a, a crisis like this. We also should mention, too, and, and we've had these people on the program before, the C.D. Howe Institute, where Mr. Shear seems to be getting this information, is considered to be a ultra-conservative think tank. Uh, uh, and, and again, they espouse, as you just talked about, Henry, the idea that they don't like giving money to, to people. As a matter of fact, even you notice when they were in power, the conservatives rarely, rarely uh, would hand out money like this. They'd give tax breaks to people, usually most of the time middle-class and upper-class folks like this. But, uh, you know, when it comes to situations like this, uh, they just don't seem to, to have that in their, their their repertoire right now to understand this. But your point's well taken. Uh, Mr. Shear uh, voted for this uh, yes. just a couple of weeks ago, and now he thinks it's, it's a bad idea. But the point that I, I wanted you to get into with this, uh, about this, Henry, is, you know, and then he also suggested, by the way, that, you know, as things improve, that we should wean people off this and get them back to work. And that's probably not a bad idea. I, Mr. Trudeau, the Prime Minister, said, yeah, we think on doing that. But his point is we're not there yet. I mean, people are, I, I haven't heard any employer saying, I can't find people to work in my shop now. They're just now opening their doors, mm -hmm. and people want to go back to work. Right. I have heard, I, uh, Henry, I have heard people that are very nervous about going back to work, but it's not because they, they think they're going to make less money. It's because they're not sure if the coast is clear, if it's, this virus is going to come back at them. And I, that, I think that's a legitimate concern. But I'm not hearing anybody saying, I'm just going to sit on my duff and collect the money. I, I don't know where he's getting that from. No, again, this is the ideology that underlies a lot of modern conservative thinking, and and I think it really doesn't, you know, correlate very well with with what how people actually behave and look at things. And as you mentioned, I think exactly correct. People, the, it's the insecurity of knowing uh, what what is my uh, financial position going to be, not only today or next week or next month. Where will it be in the summertime? What will it look like next November? Next December, can I buy you know, Christmas presents for my kids? And, and I think what we'll see, and not many people talk about this, but I, I think it is very important. Pete, there's going to be all sorts of people who will be hoarding money. That is, they'll get money and they'll try to get by uh, with a relatively low amount, much lower than they would have uh, done a year ago when they had uh, ideas of security of income. Now they're worried about, well, what's going to happen in the future? Will I be able to, you know, put food on my table when the next, uh, if, the, if, the, uh, if the virus come, comes back very dramatically uh, next winter? And they're, so they will hoard money. And then, so we're going to see businesses, you know, hit by a double whammy in terms of customers. Number one, people are afraid of getting sick, and that's particularly true. The older you are, the more likely you're not likely to go out and shop. But also, number two, for younger people with families, they're going to be worried about, am I going to have enough money in the future? Because I don't know whether, you know, 
I'm, my job's going to come back. If I is it going to come back for a while, and then I'm going to be laid off again. And so the it's the insecurity that people feel, and the, that 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 doesn't make people lazy. That makes people try watch their pennies and try to get as many as much money as possible, and put it squirrel it away for for a rainy day. Which, to your point, means that uh, even when the doors open to some of these establishments, shops, restaurants, uh, pubs, whatever it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a different world. And, and Mr. Shear does not seem to take that into consideration, that we don't flip a switch and it's business as usual. Even if uh, the, your favorite restaurant opens next week or the week after that, Henry, mm-hmm. uh, it's a different world. First of all, because of social distancing, you're not going to be able to have as many people in there which means you're not going to need as much staff, which means he's not going to call everybody back there. So there's still going to be an element of the workforce that's going to need this money. Yeah, there's a lot of these jobs are not going to come back for a while. And I think I have talked on your program before about that when we look back at the influenza that we had after yep. World War I, we, there was a recession, an important recession after the first wave, uh, where, people again, I think we saw people hoarding money. And another thing, and, and this is where people talk about, you know, the, the restaurant industry and people going out to eat. This is actually very different than what people would have done 70, 80, 100 years. That going out to a restaurant was very unusual, only for special occasions and only if you, and generally, you know, it was related to the people who had, you know, upper, upper incomes. Uh, now we have, uh, we've taken now for granted so many people feel they can go out, uh, they have, you know, up before this, go up out for meals, and probably in Canada, we were probably approaching, if not at 50% of the meals, but maybe close to it, were actually being eaten outside the home. Now with self-isolation, what we're doing is we're cooking our meals at home, and I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to for a, a while, I don't know a lo- how long it'll be, we'll be actually cook- eating a lot more meals at home. So this is, I, I, I expect it's going to take a long time for the restaurant industry to recover. And I'm including fast food as well as your fine dining. Yeah, and this goes for shops as well. I mean, yeah. you know, again, even social distancing, if it's a clothing store, right. uh, you know, only X number of people are going to be allowed in. Uh, we're going to see, I know people are frustrated the, of the lineups at the grocery store now and mm-hmm. uh, any other place that they need to go for, for what they call the essentials. But we're probably going to see that same sort of thing with some of these other shops uh, yeah. because there's only going to be so many people allowed in. There has to be distancing that goes on, and that's going to be the reality. And, and, and there's a double whammy, as we just mentioned, first of all, probably not as many staff are going to get called back because they won't need them. And that means revenues are going to be down. So, you know, the owner of the store or the franchise or whatever is going to think, I can't bring everybody back right now because I'm not just making, I'm not making any money here. Yeah, and the clothing stores now have actually a third problem. And the third problem for them is that a lot of people are getting used to ordering their clothes uh, uh, online and having yeah. it delivered to their house. So clothing stores, I think, are really in a lot of trouble. Uh, they were certainly in a lot of trouble before. Uh, the the virus hit because people were getting used to doing it online. But once the virus is hit, people, you know, people. I think uh, the evidence seems to be is people when they do need clothes are quite comfortable now, uh, you know, going online and having it delivered to their home. Which means that our local retailers of clothing are are really going to be in, I think, for serious trouble for 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 a while here. And ma- maybe we will see. Some going out of business. I know in the U.S. that one big chain, clothing chain, has already gone out of business. I would expect that we're going to see more bankruptcy in the clothing industry. Well, and what we're looking for from our political leaders here is a little empathy for the people mm-hmm. that are 
putting up with this. Right. Now, Mr. Shear's still drawing a paycheck, all right? And he's still got his expense account, and he's right. still flying back and forth across the country, apparently, with his family. Uh, he, I, I, he want, and I'm not suggesting he's, you know, live like the rest of the people for a week. I, I, I don't want to go down that road. But at least understand that there are people that are a lot worse off that are trying to get by right now, and that's what this program was put in place for. And, and that's why it, it gained all party support at the time. Uh, nobody at the time, if I remember the Prime Minister's comments and, and uh, Miss Freeland and other people, this is not a program that's just going to go on and on and on. There is an end date to this, and they'll reevaluate it when we look at where the economy is going right now. So I'm really kind of perplexed as to why Mr. Shear would decide this is what I'm going to attack today. It just sounds like he's trying to just appeal to a political base as opposed to looking at the reality of what we're going through here in this country now. Well, it may very well be in his case. Clearly, he must be stung by the fact that his party deserted him after one election. He didn't even get two shots uh, at the kicks at the can, and uh, they got rid of him after the first election. And I think here, this is basically he's trying to win back to a certain degree the favor of the party. Uh, I don't know whether he thinks that maybe they'll cancel their leadership convention and let him give him, give him a second shot, but I think I think this is an attempt to show the you know the the base of the conservative party that he really is a conservative and that he's really a good leader. And even if they don't, you know, even if he still has to go, which we all expect, that that at least he leaves on on a note of where he was doing what a, a good conservative leader was supposed to good do, at least in their eyes. So I think I think that's part of. I would suspect that's part of his thinking. Well, and again, we should learn from history, and I'm glad you brought up what happened after World War I uh, and, and the big rush that went on. There was, yes, there was the, the pandemic of that time uh, and the, the fact that you know people that had money started to hoard money, so that you know, put a kibosh on the economy. Uh, the world went into a depression as a result. And, and uh, I think our leaders, and, and I'm just talking about our Canadian leaders, but I mean other leaders from the G7 and G20 are looking at that and saying, we don't want to go down that road. We can't afford another 10 or 15 years of economic depression situations like this. Mm -hmm. uh, let's do what we can right now. And it's costing them a lot of money. It's costing every country. Uh, UK is doing the same thing. So is France. So is Germany. So is the United States, for that matter. They're spending untold amounts of money to try to keep people afloat until we can get over this thing. Uh, Mr. Shear doesn't seem to understand that. Yeah, that's, he doesn't, he's not taking the long view, that's for sure. And I, and I think we are going to see uh, a, lot, a restructuring of, of what government does after this is all over. Uh, because, you know, this is a lot of money that we've spent, and I think there's going to be a look at saying, okay, what, what, how are we going to handle this big debt that we brought up? And also, what should we be doing in the future? Uh, let's look at all the things we do. And uh, I, th I think we are going to see, a, you know, a really big change in government. And I, I find it very interesting I, coming out of the, just looking at the U.S. and looking at Joe Biden, who, look, who will be the Democratic candidate, and a lot of surveys show he'll be the president in November. We'll have to wait and see if that happens. But this is a man a few year, uh, a few months ago, was talking about he was a middle of the road guy. He was not going to do anything to rock the boat. Uh, he was not a progressive uh, revolutionary like uh, Bernie Sanders. And now, the last few weeks, what is he talking about? He's going to come in and be a major reformer and make major changes in the United States government. And I think I think that there he's not. It's not only the U.S. government that's going to happen to. I think it's going to be happen to all the government democratic governments over the Western world. They're going to have to look and say, okay, what are, what are, what are the real services we have to provide? And, and a lot of them are going to look at their public health services and say, you know, 
we we got to really be ready for this sort of stuff. We got to, you know, the health of our population uh, is terribly important, not only because we're concerned about the keeping people alive and living healthful, long lives, but we know if you don't have a healthful population, you're just not going to have a good economy. That, that's why you have to basically make sure you can protect your population from the vi- from a virus or any other type of health health threat. Well, yeah, I think we've all learned that lesson, and I, I, you're right. I think governments have to reprioritize this, and you, you've got to get off the political mantra here and the political philosophies, and and just look at the reality of the situation here. And and I know that you know the conservative methodology when it comes to finances as well. No, we've got to you know be thrifty, and we've got to balance the books, and and you know. If, if you don't have a job and if you can't feed your family and you can't pay your mortgage, you really don't give a damn if they're balancing the books in Ottawa. You want something to happen that's going to help you. Exactly. That's right. And an individual, and they have to feel secure. They have to be, have a positive feeling about the future. Now, there are some surveys that I've seen and people have been talking about that there is optimism starting to, you know, edge into how people see the future. So it's starting to creep up. Uh, you know, it's not a dramatic increase, but if, as people become more, you know, uh, positive about the future, then then that will help the con- economy. But it, it it but it's tied really. I think they're paying attention to what's happening with that virus. They don't, you know, when they see the high death counts, when they see that a lot of new cases coming on, that makes them very insecure. And I think the, the, the now the drop or plateauing of the of the cases of the virus are probably having a positive effect on some people saying, well, this is going down, so you know things look a little bit brighter uh, health-wise, and that probably means that there's, it's going to be a, a brighter economy. Now, as I said, I think it's a small, small increases in that direction, but it, it's, it's a good direction to be going in. Well, I mean, we're told that the Prime Minister is going to make some announcements today about fi- financing and, and some assistance for farmers, too. I, I just find... On a, on a broad base, I know we're almost out of time. I, I find Shear's comments insulting to Canadian workers that that they would just say, "Yeah, I'll just take the money and do nothing." Uh, that's not the spirit of of the people I know and the people in this Hamilton area mm-hmm. uh, that work diligently and, and and bring paychecks home. And to suggest that no, we got a free ride here. Uh, there's always going to be a couple of them. There's probably a few of them in Parliament Hill that do the same sort of thing yeah. too. That just take the paycheck and don't do much about it. Sure. But to suggest that that's going to be a problem here, I think, is really uh, another example that this guy just. Does doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't seem to understand uh, what Canadian people are all about, and that's that's sad. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you're absolutely correct about that. It is it is insulting. It is it is not a a proper understanding, I think, of what basic human nature is like, certainly, and what our basic Canadian nature is. He d- I don't think uh, I think that is completely wrong, and and I think the it's it's probably why the Conservative Party uh, has been for some time basically. Uh, uh, in most elections, really more the minority party, uh, and uh, versus versus looking at at the combined opposition, yes. and we see it, you know, in the minority situation now, where basically the the liberals with their policies of of, of being progressive, uh, progressive and providing people with the money they need to get through this crisis, that they're supported by you know the the, the third, the fourth, and the fifth opposition parties in the legislature. Uh, who are there, uh, uh, and it's uh, and the conservatives are all you know all by themselves on one side of the legislature, and, and their their view is clearly the minority view in the legislature, even though they are are the official opposition. Henry Jasek, always a pleasure, Henry. Thanks so much for this. Stay well. We'll talk again soon. Okay, very good, though. Take care. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are some concerns, and I think very serious concerns, being raised about uh, relations between China and the United States, and even more broadly between China and uh, many other countries in the, in the Western world. Uh, just how tense relations? Well, apparently, an international, uh, internal rather, Chinese report warns that Beijing is facing a wave of hostility in the wake of the outbreak, uh, of course, of COVID-19. But that's only one of major, many major problems. There are trade issues and so many other things, and there's a concern right now that these tensions could escalate into something much more serious. Joining us to talk about this is Benoit Hardy-Chatron, adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, in Tokyo. Uh, Benoit, been a long time. I'm glad you're back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Good to have you back here. Hope you're doing well in, vi- in sl- spite of what's going on in the world these days uh, with the viruses, etc. Uh, which I-, I guess is as good a place as any to start with Canada or China-U.S. relations and-, and what's going on with COVID-19. A lot of rhetoric, Benoit, going back and forth about where this virus started, why it was started, and, and you've seen uh, the reports uh, that Trump and others are-, are talking about in the United States right now, basically pointing the finger at China and said not only did it start there in Wuhan, but it was actually devised in Wuhan by Chinese scientists. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any valid uh, evidence to prove that, but uh, he's saying it, and some, buy, some people are buying it. Yeah, for sure. You're going to have a lot of people that are going to buy that for sure. And I think in the case of what we've been witnessing over the last few days, I think Donald Trump has been facing a lot of uh, pressure, a lot of he's probably feeling the heat over his own uh, handling of the crisis, especially the way that he handled the crisis in early uh, January and February. So for him, I think it's a fairly uh, positive or not positive, but a fairly good course of action to try to shift the blame from his own his own administration's handling of the crisis to the Communist Party. And of course, there are some very, very valid criticisms about the way that the Chinese Communist Party has handled the crisis, especially in the early days, uh, starting back in December and in January, because as we know, there was early on um, an attempt by the Communist Party to try to diminish or dismiss uh, some of the original claims by some of the doctors in Wuhan over the virus. And that has led or for sure contributed to uh, the situation that we are seeing today. Um, so it does make sense for the United States to, and not only the U.S., there are other, a lot of other countries that are doing that, trying to shift the blame towards uh, China. But another problem uh, which you alluded to is when we are hearing allegations of the virus coming from uh, a specific uh, laboratory in uh, Wuhan. And even though Mike Pompeo, the American Secretary of State, is talking about uh, some proofs, he has yet to show these proofs. So it does not really, uh, it doesn't help really to uh, kind of get uh, more to add some credibility to the claims that the United States are, uh, are making. Of course, some people are going to believe them, but it would be probably held the cause if they were going to uh, release the evidence that they are uh, alluding to. And, and there are a couple of things at play here, Benoit, that you touched on here that, that really, I think, uh, make this a pretty logical explanation as far as the U.S. is concerned anyway. First of all, Tr- Donald Trump is the master of deflection. Nothing is ever his fault, so he's got to find somebody to blame. And, and in this particular case, though, Benoit, the Chinese are a pretty easy target uh, because of, of their lack of transparency in so many things, not just with COVID, but trade deals and so many other situations like this. Uh, there's a willing body of, of, of not just people in the United States, but I think very 
operate around the world that are going to say, yeah, that's, there goes China again doing that sort of thing. So there's, you know, there, there's a, an idea here for him to latch onto this. But are, are we are we that concerned about this and that myopic that we're going to say, oh, wait a second, let's see if there's any evidence here? Um, well, when we're talking about the this particular evidence, it's clear everybody understands that this virus has started in China. Um, most epidemiologists, however, do understand that uh, there's no evidence at this point that this has started in a laboratory specifically. It all seems, from all the indications we have, it has started in a specific wet market in the city of Wuhan in the province of uh, Hubei. So uh, as far as the ultimate evidence, it's going to be difficult to come by, obviously, for the reasons that you have talked about, the, the, the lack of transparency. It's always been a major issue with all things related to Chinese politics. Uh, it's one of the least transparent regimes. Uh, it's a regime that has functioned over 70 years uh, based on non or on non-transparency, on secrecy. Uh, we've just celebrated the 70th anniversary of the uh, Communist Party of China it started in 1949, and it's a party that has managed to keep maintain its grip on power by being able to silence critics, silence opposition. Um, so therefore, when it comes to this, even though China is trying to portray or paint itself as a respons- responsible player in the world, I think it's going to be hard to convince uh, on this front to convince China to release uh, whatever kind of evidence or to be more transparent on that front. It is simply not in the DNA of the Chinese Communist Party. There is evidence, though, Benoit, that uh, that they they, hide, they hid this for the longest time. I, I guess the question a lot of folks Absolutely. are asking, medical authorities are asking right now, is how long were they hiding this? And, and obviously this thing became a lot more severe than they had anticipated. Uh, you know, when you start looking at some of the past viruses that have gone on here that have created uh, epidemics and uh, the odd pandemic too, sadly, uh, they tend to, re- they're usually from animals passed on to humans. Uh, you know, we saw that with SARS, we saw that with the bird flu, we saw that with so many other things that have gone on. So there's a body of evidence and some logic that indicates that, look, at that's where this started. Those wet markets that we've talked about, that's where some other viruses have started. But this seemed to get out of hand uh, with the Chinese government. And I think that there is a legitimate, uh, uh, a complaint right now that they withheld information right. that probably might have been able to, to be of some assistance to Canada and the United States and other countries as they tried to deal with it with the, the onset in their countries. No, of course. And you're absolutely right in, in, in pointing fingers towards that particular problem. And it is the main criticism that a lot of countries have uh, leveled at China over the last few months. So you mentioned about, uh, you mentioned that the first few weeks of this epidemic, it seemed like the first case uh, started in December. It's only in January, January, more than a month after the first case that they actually notified the World Health Organization. And as one of the main problems as well is early on, there were some uh, doctors in Wuhan who had tried to raise the alarm over this new, uh, this new virus that they had seen evidence of. Uh, they wanted to communicate information about that. And one of the, the few doctors that raised the alarm that were basically whistleblowers were arrested by the Chinese Communist Party. And one of them, one of the most famous, uh, one of the most famous one, one of the first, uh, one of the first whistleblowers actually died from the coronavirus. So this is one of the main problems here. If the Communist Party had decided to be more open about this situation from the get-go, 
It would have given a crucial few weeks to countries around the world to get better prepared to deal with this, with this epidemic. Um, I'll just give you the example of Japan here. I'm located in Tokyo. Tokyo mm-hmm. is the second country after China, uh, which had some declared coronavirus crisis, uh, cases. And uh, Japan, as, any, as many other countries, would have been able to come up with a better uh, contingency plan to deal with something like that, because this is a situation, a pandemic, without any precedent over the last century, well, since 1918, as a matter of fact. So the way that China has dealt with this is obviously, um, is, is obviously contributed to this problem. But what's been interesting is to see the way that you've seen this kind of diplomatic public diplomacy initiative by China over the last few months, over the last month or two, I would say, actually, in which they have tried to paint uh, its performance as being very positive. They've been able to eradicate, not eradicate, but they've been able to contain the pandemic within China. They have uh, sent medical equipment all over the world. All of this in an attempt to kind of re, um, repackage, if you will, the whole situation um, and to deflect the blame from its own um, mishandling of the situation. But the problem is, over the last few weeks, we've seen really a growing chorus of country. The United States is not the only one. We've seen that in Australia. Uh, we've seen a few European countries as well. This growing chorus of voices that are calling for greater transparency and calling for greater responsibility and the, 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 for, for the Chinese government basically to shouldering more of the blame uh, for what has been happening. In, in a Almost in a companion uh, piece here, uh, the World Health Organization has come under a great deal of, uh, of, of angst from the United States government in particular, but, but and some questions to be asked for sure about the way they've handled this and, and their association with the Chinese government. Some would suggest that they, they're actually, uh, you know, playing patsy for the Chinese government, uh, that there were things that they knew that they did not want to make public either for whatever reason. Right. Is, is there any legitimacy to that, Benoit? Yeah, well, the WHO has come under uh, criticism and under fire for reasons that are quite understandable. Because if you look at the statement from the head of the WHO, um, from the very beginning of the crisis, he has been very hesitant to um, blame in any way China for its handling of the situation. As a matter of fact, he was actually pretty, uh, very praiseworthy of China. He was praising China at any at any juncture. There were other instances as well of high officials from the WHO who were uh, fairly, um, who, who lavished the Chinese Communist Party with praise for the way that, uh, that they handled the crisis. One thing we have to understand is the current um, head of the WHO, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he was only able to be elected as the head of the WHO through um, the support of China at the United Nations, because many, it's basically through a vote that they are elected. And without the support of China, he would not have been able to, uh, to become the head of the WHO. And his links, his own personal links to China and the Communist Party actually go back uh, much longer, way before he was actually the head of the WHO. Therefore, these questions, these doubts that have been raised over the way that the WHO uh, HO has been dealing with this crisis and its relation or its, uh, the way that it's talked about China, I think these doubts are certainly legitimate. But I think it goes down to a larger problem because in the United Nations in general, China over the last five to ten years uh, has been has been taking a lot more space and a lot more influence. So it's not limited to the WHO itself. Many 
United Nations agencies are currently under greater and greater um, influence by China. And that's to be expected because China is increasingly important, of course. China is increasingly a rich country, which is contributing financially to the UN. But obviously, that raises question over the way that these agencies are going to operate, because we are all well aware that the values of the Communist Party are very different than, than those that we in Canada value or those that we, we and our allies basically in the West value. So there are some very legitimate and understandable questions that we can ask about that issue. But we've, many people have predicted that already, though, Benoit. There's, obviously, we know that you know where there's a void, where the U.S. used to be the dominant force in the United Nations and globally, for that matter. Uh, under right. Trump, obviously, they have retracted that. They've pulled back. Somebody's going to fill that void, and China's looked at that as a golden opportunity, Absolutely. whether it's trade or influence in, in, in the rest of the, in the global economies. So that's not surprising that they've done that. And uh, much to the angst, I guess, of no. an awful lot of people. But I mean, it's, it's really because the U.S., basically abdicated that responsibility. Yes, and it's a very good point that you raise. Um, I think even if the U.S. had not abdicated this responsibility, uh, there's no doubt that the Chinese would have been taking a uh, larger role, taken on a larger role at the United Nations. This is, this is just a, a role that is, I would say, commensurate with its very, very fastly, quickly growing capabilities. However, there's no doubt, and this is why I'm glad you raised that issue, there's no doubt that if the United States had not been looking increasingly inward under the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, it would not have, have opened the way that quickly to China. Uh, I'll give you two examples of that. Um, let's just look at the Human Rights uh, Commission, the Human Rights Council. Human Rights Council is one of the main uh, agencies of the United Nations. And three years ago, I think it was the first year of Donald Trump's presidency, uh, the United States decided to withdraw from the Human Rights Council, which is the main body that deals with uh, human rights at the United Nations. Well, what has been the result of that? Of course, this vacuum has been filled with China. Now, the same thing happens with the WHO, with the United States uh, withdrawing its support or its financial contribution, at least for the time being, that is going to even further give or give an even further opportunity for China to increase uh, the role that it plays. And that is very, very difficult to overturn, even if the United States were going to um, come back to the WHO and reinstate its contribution. So these are just two very, very um, clear examples. But you see that across many other agencies in the United Nations where the diminishing role of the U.S. is really a great, it's, it's a gift for the Chinese Communist Party, for the Chinese government, which has been for years trying to increase its clout in international affairs. There's no better institution, no better state to do that than the United Nations. Benoit, always a pleasure to have you on. It's uh, not lost on a lot of people, I think, that, uh, as you just mentioned, an awful lot of people were heaping praise on the Chinese for their handling of COVID initially. Uh, one of the biggest cheerleaders happened to be Donald Trump. I bet there's been a quick about face on that, and that which kind of begs the question, is it just for political expediency? That's a question yet to be answered, I suppose. Stay well and stay healthy. It was Absolutely. great to have you on here again, Benoit. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much, Bill. Have a nice day. You too. Benoit Hardy Shatran, a professor at Temple University in Japan in uh, downtown Tokyo. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.